I think one of the reasons our culture has been unusual is because we were so young and so incompetent when we started. I can speak for myself. I, yeah, I was 20 years old. I, I intended to be at the company for six months, and all of a sudden we're creating this clothing company. Everybody else is in the office is surfing, so I'm the only person to answer the phones. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my wallpaper-surrounded co-host, Rodney Evans. I'm so proud of myself. Hi, everyone. We are also joined today by Vincent Stanley, Patagonia's Director of Philosophy, which is a fantastic job title, and the co-author of The Responsible Company, which is here on the Brave New Work bookshelf. Vincent, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Patagonia, of course. But before we unpack that, we will check in as we always do. We will. We'll get present. We'll get rolling. We'll hear from everybody, including our esteemed guest, with this question. If you could go back in time to yesterday morning, what advice would you give yourself? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to say, Aaron, you go first, and then Vincent, and then I'll finish off. Fantastic. I would tell myself, I wish I could go back further than yesterday morning because I ended up doing a speech at 6 a.m. after traveling the day before. (laughs) So I would like to tell my even earlier self to maybe get a buffer built in there. But I think yesterday the advice would have been you need to make time for a nap today. Mm -hmm. Vincent, what about you? Well, you know, along the same theme, I think I would have said you need to take time for exercise today because I had a big day and I, I didn't do that which is always an error. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Related to my intro, I wallpapered yesterday. And Mm. my advice, had I had it, that would have made my life a lot easier would have been to change the blade in the X-Acto knife because it would have made everything go faster and be less frustrating when trimming around the edges. The old sharpen your saw advice. sharpen before you cut man (laughs) i should know better than that that's good that's good org design advice as well all right well today's topic is what we can learn from patagonia i think and what we can learn from from you vincent so i guess i'd like to start by asking you the responsible company this book that you co-wrote with patagonia's founder was published in 2012 and that's nearly 10 Mm -hmm. years ago so what does corporate responsibility look like today or does it actually look the same or different from when that book and that message came out? You know, it, it's interesting. I don't, th- I don't think it looks any different. But mm-hmm. I think that the because the way we define responsibility is basically if you have a product or a service, you're, you're responsible for everything that goes into it, regardless of whether it's, you know, Patagonia doesn't make clothes. We have them made in factories that we don't own. But it's still our responsibility to make sure that the the dye that goes into our clothes is not coming out in someone's water in Asia. It's our responsibility to make sure that employees who are sewing the clothes, not our employees, but the employees of the factories are being paid a living wage. All of those things are subject to agency. In, in other words, you can learn what's being done in your name, what's being done in your company's name, 
what contributes to the final label on the product. You can act to make changes where changes need to be made and can be made because oftentimes we're all participating in a, in a global system and we may not have the wherewithal or the capacity to make changes. But this, this idea that mm-hmm. you actually examine all of your practices and make changes where changes need to be made, that was true in 2012 and it's true today. What's different, I think, is that the overall business climate has changed. And I think there's a, we've been talking about the environmental crisis for 30 years and more than climate change. We've been talking about the, basically the desertification of the planet, the the loss of freshwater, the pollution of, of rivers, the acidification of the oceans, the loss of species. And all of this that was the, the, the disasters that came out of that, that used to be episodic, now seem to be chronic. And we've also had COVID for the last year and a half, which is a huge, I mean, I, th- I, I think it's hard to bring that to the front of the mind, how much change or how much difficulty that has created in the past year and a half that we don't even know how to process or we don't know how to deal with that as human beings. We may know how to deal with that as business people in terms of having people work at home in terms of adapt adapting, but we don't really know how it affects our psyches. The other thing that's changed is new generation of workers. Young people don't want to work for bad companies. The other thing that has changed is a strong demand from institutional investors, from sovereign funds and pension funds, not to invest in companies that are going to create financial risk because those companies are creating social and environmental risk. So all that, all, all, all of those things have changed. So now the, the B Corp movement, which was really small in 2012 when the book came out, there are now 3,500 mm-hmm. companies, but a lot more companies interested and a lot, several bigger companies interested. So I don't want to be Pollyannish about this Panglossian and say, okay, this is all going to create a better world. But I think the circumstances have changed. And I think it's more possible and more people see the urgency of creating businesses that actually deal with the social and environmental crises that we face. Uh, and business has an important role to play. I mean, we, we generate 80% of the environmental impact. It's not through personal use of whether you compost your banana peels. It's the decisions that are made in companies that deeply affect the future of the planet and also human communities. So your title, which is amazing and we're obsessed with, is Patagonia's Director of Philosophy. And we understand that you are also the unofficial chief storyteller there. What are some of Patagonia's stories, both known and maybe not so well known, that you really feel the most proud of? Well, those are kind of two, two separate questions. But I, I think that I would, I would start by saying we started off as a mountain climbing equipment company. And Yvon Chouinard started off as a teenager when he was 18. And as a climber, he couldn't find the equipment he wanted. So he took a book out of the Burbank Library on blacksmithing, you know, borrowed 800 
$800 from his parents and bought a, a used drop forge and anvil and uh, converted the former chicken coop in the backyard into a, into a blacksmith shop. And for 15 years, the company was very small. When I started, we hadn't started Patagonia yet. The business did well under a million a year. But we had the reputation for making the best climbing equipment in the world. And that kind of emphasis on quality, which is really significant for, for climbing equipment because your customers are trusting their lives to the quality of your goods. And the other thing is that that was important, but also that everybody, everybody except me were climbers and surfers. And there was a culture of loving wild places and loving what you did in wild places that really influenced the company from the beginning and it influences the company today. So that was, a, that was in, very important in determining culture. It was very important in determining what the overall story of the company is, which was always kind of clear. It was not kind of a conventional business. We didn't incorporate in order to, you know, make a killing and sell to somebody else. It was really based on this love for a particular sport and wanting to do it justice in terms of the products we made. And when we got into the clothing business, which was basically to pay for the climbing equipment business because you know we, <laughs> the profits were very small. We had like 75% of the global market, but we were still doing less than a million a year. Some of the habits that we had developed in the climbing equipment company sort of stayed with us in clothing, even against our own wishes. I mean, I think we thought when we got into clothing, you know, this is, we're going to keep our hands clean. You know, we're, <laughs> we're not going to get mm -hmm. machine oil on our hands. We're not going to, we don't have the risk of our products rusting in the corner if water gets into the shop. We, we thought it was an easy business. And we quickly discovered, of course, that we didn't know what we were doing. It was not an easy business at all. And we discovered that even if it wasn't iron or steel, that the environmental implications of making fabrics were enormous. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but I, the, the first part of it, Patagonia's purpose or Patagonia's mission very much formed in that ethos. The second question is, what are we proud of? I think that you know one of the things I have to point out would be our switch to organic cotton, where we discovered the harm that conventional practices in cultivating cotton. At the, at the time, in the late 1980s, I think 25% of the chemicals in agriculture were used in cotton cultivation. And um, other companies were experimenting with eco lines. You know, they'd have the regular clothing line, and then they'd have a, a line of organics. Right, right. And we we looked at this, and, and I think Yvonne said, "You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be creating this kind of harm. And if we can't figure out a way to go organic, I want to be out of the sportswear business." And that was about a third of our line. The rest being fleece and outerwear. And that was a really difficult change for the company. You know, we ordered cotton from the farmers we couldn't mm -hmm. there was no there was no infrastructure so we ordered the or, the cotton from the farmers in the san joaquin valley they had no relationship to the spinners who turned the plant into 
fiber. They had no relationship to the mills that turned the fiber into fabric. So we had our employees who had to do everything they had done the year before in terms of designing the clothes and showing them to the major customers and you know doing the specs and the, the colors. They also had to find an entire new infrastructure for cotton sportswear. And what and we started to have a, a revolt on our hands, a gentle mm-hmm. revolt. But people said, listen, you know, <laughs> why are, why are nobody, not a single customer has ever asked us for an organic cotton shirt. And this is extraordinarily difficult. It feels like we're risking the business. Why are we the martyrs? And what we ended up doing is we ended up, because we, the more we had learned about conventional practices, the more we were convinced that this change was necessary. We had already committed to it. So we hired buses and we took employees 40 at a time out to the Central Valley. And one of the things you noticed when when you got into cotton country was the smell, because the organophosphates that are used to prepare the plants were originally developed as nerve gases for World War II. That if you got any, if you got into the actual soil where conventional cotton was grown, there was no life in it, no no, no weeds, but also no worms, nothing that you know. You need a rich mixture of microbes and fungi that actually create living topsoil, and that that wasn't there. The the plants were basically dead. They were held in place rather in dead soil, mechanically held in place. At the end of the day, we'd take employees to an organic farm, and they'd see the difference. It didn't smell like a factory. There were birds flying overhead that would avoid the ordinary cotton fields. You could dig your hand in the, in the, in the dirt and feel real soil. And people came back from that and said, you know, this is a real pain, what, we're, what we have to do, but... The company's made the right decision, and we're going to help make it happen. That was a real turning point for us. And I think that what I'm proudest of in our company is that capacity in this culture, in Patagonia's culture, to recognize that something is the wrong thing to do and to figure out a way around it and how much that motivates everybody and how much that actually has become the driving force of the company. It's become the business model in some ways that the the constraints that we place on ourselves require innovation that then sets us apart from other companies. You know, it's, I'm glad you brought that story up because there are so many stories, I think, in Patagonia's history of trying to do this unconventional thing. And then it turns out that it is possible or that it can work. And in many cases actually really drives the business to that next level. But I am curious, since we have this inside access, are there failed experiments? Are there times when you couldn't figure it out or you couldn't get it done? What are the kind of stumbling blocks along the way that have been interesting to you or have taught you something about Mm -hmm. this endeavor? It's interesting. Of course, there are failures. There are a lot of businesses that we've gone into that we retreated from. Not not businesses, but types of clothing. There have been spectacular environmental failures. We put on one year, we decided to put tagua nuts 
as the buttons for every shirt we made and on, you know, the waistbands of pants. And they came mm. from the rainforest and it was a great idea. But what we didn't research was that if you put those buttons in the dryer, they fell apart. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had to, you know, we had to recall just about all of our sportswear production and, and so on conventional plastic buttons. But I think more important than the failures, I think every business and every creative endeavor knows the value of failure. But I think that the way we operate has made, it makes life harder a lot of the time because everything in business is arranged for convenience and price. And if you say, no, I'm not going to use this particular kind of wood because it's not sustainable, then you have to do the research to find an alternative. So all of that, it just makes work harder. And it makes brings conflict to the fore because you've got people who are pressed. They have to they have a lot of things to do. And again, as with organic cotton, they're saying, why do I have to do that when I can just pick up the phone and order this fabric? Why do I have to go through two months of research to find an alternative? I, I think that more than failures has been a challenge for the company. But at the, you know, on the good side, <laughs> when we do find that solution, we generally own it. We have a year or two as a business before anybody else adopts it. Though right. we're committed to sharing anything that we do that actually has reflects an environmental improvement, we do share with with our uh, competitors. So, just sticking in the historical theme just for now. How are some of Patagonia's bolder practices and philosophies first adopted? You know, Aaron and I live in the sort of future of work world, and there are a lot of companies that are waking up to doing things more like the way that y'all have been doing them for a very long time. So I'm just curious to hear a little bit about those early days and, and how did you get really started on this path? Well, I think we were, in some ways, we were on the path from the beginning. <laughs> I think one of the reasons our culture has been unusual is because we were so young and so incompetent when we started. I can speak for myself. I, I was 20 years old. I, I intended to be at the company for six months, and all of a sudden we're creating this clothing company. Everybody else is in the office is surfing, so I'm the only person to answer the phones. And uh, so I get tapped on the shoulder and they say, okay, you're sales manager. I say, what is that? And they say, we don't know either, but you, you, you'll, you'll figure it out. And <laughs> no, really, and what, what happened in those early times is because we were all so new to what we were doing, we didn't come out of, we relied on each other for support. So if I have to figure out, I'm going to go to a trade show for the first time, or I'm hiring reps and I'm trying to figure out how to do it, I would, I would talk to my colleagues and they would raise questions that I wouldn't think of myself. So there was a kind of collegial atmosphere of, okay, let's figure this out together. It's very different from an ordinary hierarchical approach to business. We had the commitment of the founders to quality and then to environmentalism and 
to sound practices with our employees. But we also, from the very beginning, we had this committed middle management with a strong sense of its own agency, its own volition, its own ability to make things happen or not make things happen. I was mentioning this to someone earlier today that I think that the healthiest part of our culture is in retail employees. And if you go into one of retail employees, they're not the highest paid. They're not the, the most celebrated. They don't often don't stay with the company for a long time. They're young people. They're going on to do something else. But if you go into one of our stores with a problem, either you're not quite sure what to buy or you, you bought a Patagonia product and the zipper is broken, and you go in and you talk to someone on the, on the retail floor, they will never bounce you up to a manager. They will answer your questions and solve your problem themselves. And they feel, they know that they can do that and that they won't be reprimanded if they come up with a solution that their manager may feel differently about. I think that's such a critical element for the culture. It's a necessity that people feel that they can and that they're not just operating within a very narrow frame, framework within the, you know, the, the guidelines put out for employees and then have to kick it up to a manager. So I, I would say it was those two things that you had this brilliant vision of the owner who really didn't micromanage at all. And then you had this strong interest from the middle management in making the company work. That often also counteracted mistakes from the higher leadership. And again, I can, I can tell a story against myself when I was uh, head of marketing. Mm-hmm. I decreed that all of the windows in October and all the stores around the world would have the yoga line. And then somebody kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, yoga isn't anything in Japan. <laughs> and uh, yoga clothes <laughs> aren't either. So I'm, I'm making these kind of radical decisions at 30,000 feet, ignoring the importance of place, the importance of locality, not consulting with my people beforehand. And I think that that's really gets businesses into trouble. And I think that one of the reasons Patagonia has been successful is that we have enough people who can tap the head of marketing on the shoulder and say, this is, this is not the thing to do and a change would be made. I, it, it really resonates with me, that whole story of it emerging from noviceness and from freshness to it. I think that like beginner's mind aspect of what we're doing here and just being, you know, for each other with each other is often so much better than leaning on the habits and the norms of how things are done. And that kind of brings me to, to my next question, which is even though it is so profound, what Patagonia and other companies like it have accomplished and how, how, much more nourishing that can be. That is not the norm. It's been 40 years. And even though Patagonia and other companies like it have done really profoundly different things and things that are much more focused on 
the planet and community. That is not the norm. Most most companies still don't think like that. They still don't operate like that. If they do, sometimes it's it's greenwashing or hand waving. Why do you think that is? And what, if anything, do you think we can do about that as as participants in this system? I, I think some of the answer why why that would be the case is that I think managers, top managers, leaders tend to overestimate their own capacities for making decisions. <laughs> and and no, I, I really mean, think so that's I. true. And yeah. And I think that one of the things you you can do about it is to is to make sure you've got a process that goes top down and bottom up simultaneously so that you could test whatever the leadership has in mind for for the medium to long term and what the people who are doing the work have to say about it and they people who are doing the work should be able to determine i think 70 to 80 percent of how they do the work which is often hard for managers to to allow they don't they don't trust that i i think it's going to be more important this is an interesting age. Again, you know, problems that were were episodic have become chronic, with especially with with climate change and also with social inequality. And you know, dealing with COVID, where I haven't been to the office since March 2020. Right. We've been running the company pretty well in difficult circumstances, and everybody else has been doing the same and managing family life on 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 top of it. But I don't th- I don't see a break. I don't see it going back to normal. I see a kind of constant need for adaptation given the situation of the world today. And if you want to be able to respond, if you want to be able to adapt, you really need everybody on board and you need to, <laughs> you can't, you can't dumb it down. You, you, you can't give orders to a bunch of people and say, do this. It, it won't work anymore. It used to work when you had a lot of, well, I don't know how well it worked, but say if you were AT&T when it was a monopoly in the 1960s, perhaps you could operate that way. But I don't think you can operate that way now. So we did want to ask you about this moment of uncertainty, and this seems like the time. It sounds like you all, like most of us, have been working remotely. And I'm, I am curious what other kinds of new experiments you're conducting. You know, we're seeing and thinking a lot about things like burnout and hybrid work and what the future of the office looks like and the future of retail, frankly. What are you all trying right now to meet this moment where all of a sudden we're having to rethink a lot of things that we've taken for granted historically? I think well, we're doing a lot. I, I think one thing I can I can talk about is that we miss working together. Um, I think a lot happens informally through, I mean, this was true of our company from the beginning. Ideas would come up when two people would go for a bike ride at lunch. And, you know, we've had a cafe at work. We've had people talk to each other in in the halls. There's so much that happens faster because of that informal conversation. I think that one of the things we're looking at is January, we hope, if the we're able to deal with the uh, Delta variant. And we're, we're thinking of a three-day 
uh, work week in the office, two days uh, at not in the office. We've had a 980 work week for a long time, for several years, so that every other Friday employees have that off so they have a three-day weekend. But I think what we're looking at is, okay, this is going to be kind of a hybrid time. We're also looking at giving, allowing people to work remotely, say, for a month, a year, um, if they're off in the mountains or they're by the ocean and have a second place that they value. So, and I think what, what's going to be important is just to really monitor this very closely, see what works and what doesn't. I think it's, we don't know what we're missing at this point. And uh, we won't know what works and doesn't work until we actually do it. I guess I'm curious, given that and the the openness there to to what may come, I am curious about the dynamic between patience and urgency, yeah. both yeah. in building the culture and also in building towards this vision, this solution of, of a, a world without as much waste and where we take greater care of, of the earth in business. How has the culture figured out how to stay on that mission, which feels ex- especially urgent right now with the condition of the climate and the pandemic and things like that, but also be in it for the long run without losing faith, without losing hope? Well, I, you know, I think it's interesting that you you use the the phrase urgency and and patience in the same sentence and the writer Andy Rivkin who's an environmental writer for for many years has argued that we need both and i think one of the problems of human activity is that we uh, rush into something on a big scale that doesn't work and then we have too much investment in it to change it if you look at natural systems change is constant, but at a fairly slow rate. And I think that's one of the things we we need to learn from the processes of the natural world, that we need to be able to make small changes all the time, but we shouldn't be changing things on a kind of wholesale basis that take years and years to undo. And in terms of losing faith, I think as long as you're acting on what you know, I think that in my experience, our employees have been engaged. And yeah, you have disappointments. And yes, you have moments that feel very frustrating. But I, th- I think as if, if, if you really think that you're dealing, you're facing the world as it is in a kind of radical way that you're really trying to find root solutions to these big problems. It, in, it engages human beings. It's just, you know, it keeps you awake. It keeps people working together in some way. So, you know, I, th- I think that's the argument I would make, that that urgency and that patience, you know, they have to be there at the right times and, and with the right perspective to whatever the particular problem is. Some things require patience and some things require urgency. <laughs> and wisdom is knowing the difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wisdom is knowing the difference. And, and God knows we're, we're not always wise enough. But it's, it, it's a matter of, of paying attention and, and changing course when you recognize uh, that you're taking the wrong approach. So something that's occurring to me as, as I'm listening to you talk, Vincent, is just 
this mirror between what happens inside of Patagonia culturally and what you all are up to in terms of the market and the environment. And I am sure most of us have been in and around companies where those two things don't feel particularly coherent or aligned. You know, companies that say sustainability is our top priority, but their workforce is not working in a way that's sustainable, or who say their customer base is a top priority, but who don't dedicate any real investment or thought to equity internally. I'm curious if that's something that you all have done very consciously, or if it just like can't be any other way. I'd love to hear you talk about that. Well, you know, I, I think that a lot of companies unleash their marketing departments <laughs> <laughs> to, to say whatever people want to hear. And I, I think that that's a big mistake. I think for if you want to really be sustainable and if you really want to be successful as a business, it can't be a kind of compromise between purpose and profit. You've really got to build your business around your strengths and in some ways your challenges. I mean, I keep coming back to the word constraint. So if you're telling a story that nobody's going to believe, <laughs> which is most marketing stories, you know, you're, you're, you people have, have kind of a built-in bullshit detector in their it washes over everybody's head. So I don't know why people are spending millions of dollars to put out sustainability uh, messages that no one is going to pay attention to because they're not credible. A message is credible when it reflects what the reader or the viewer knows about the company or senses about the company and whether that message has been consistent over time and whether that company's actions have actually borne out the promise that has been made to the customer. So my sense is, is that good storytelling, which is that to me as you identify, every company is different like every human being, like every snowflake. Identify the strengths of your business and of your business culture. Determine what your values are, what's really important to this organization and to the people in this organization. And build your business around that. And when you do that, that, that keeps you from, becomes a kind of strategic decision. Because anything that takes you away from that becomes a kind of drift that becomes apparent very quickly. And it also becomes apparent to your customers, your investors, your employees, who say, now, wait a minute, how, this is not in line with what, not only what we're talking about, but what we've done and what we've aspired to do. So, you know, the, I, I just think in a world with the kinds of challenges that we have, every business needs to do something useful needs to, to produce useful products and services and to do them in the right way. Then you can't do that without having this kind of strong relationship between the message you put out and the reality of your culture and your business. That makes sense. I am curious, this whole story has really made it clear that building from 
the ground up, from doing this from a white sheet of paper, has allowed for a lot of really interesting things to emerge for Patagonia. Do you believe, having sort of witnessed many other companies alongside you over the years, do you believe it's possible for an organization that has a different history and a different story to find their way to some of these principles and practices from a different place, of a different state, a different culture? Or do you feel like it's really only the provenance of companies that have the the advantage of starting from unique circumstances? Well, you know, in, in many ways, a lot of what we've done has been retrofitted. We did have the original, we had the original culture, the climbing and surfing culture and the insistence on quality. But, you know, in terms of sustainability and all that, that didn't, there was no sense of that in 1973. If you wanted to talk about environmental change, you talked about changing government regulations, not in terms of what individual companies or what individual industries did. I think that it's possible for any company to discern its own purpose and its strengths, its relationship to the society, where it's going to take a stand, how it's going to develop its products. And you have a lot of companies dealing with this, like Unilever, which is really trying to figure out where it falls short, where it needs to make changes. Danone has been a leader, has had a strong commitment to making all of its subsidiaries B Corps. It's had some setbacks, separation of Emmanuel Faber from the company, the recent decision to suspend uh, dairy production from Vermont and uh, move to uh, Western feedlots. But I don't think, I, I, I think it's imperative, especially big businesses now, look at investor pressures that if they want good employees, <laughs> they want to hold on to them. They, they have to demonstrate how they are being responsible socially and environmentally and how they're improving their responsibility. So I, I think this is in the air and it's on the table. I, I talk to a lot more big companies now than I did five or 10 years ago. And I don't think it's going to go away as a kind of in, internal demand in the company. And businesses improving their responsibility in the world Seems like a pretty good place to wrap up this awesome conversation. Vincent, where can our listeners find out more about you and about the work that you're doing at Patagonia and out in the world? Thanks for asking. Uh, I think the responsible company is actually more relevant now than it was when it came out in 2012. So you can find out about the work there. Also, Yvonne's book, uh, Let My People Go Surfing, is a kind of Bible for people who want to have meaningful work. And uh, I, I recommend those two books. And our website, Patagonia's website, has a, you know, interesting content about any number of issues from regenerative organic agriculture to surfing to climbing to in improving access uh, to all people, uh, to the outdoors and to the experience of the wilderness. 
Vincent, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. If you like what you're hearing, a review would mean an awful lot to both of us and to our friends and family. Or even better, just go ahead and forward this show, forward this episode to someone you know that likes to climb, that likes to surf, that likes to think about business differently, and we'll grow our Brave New Work community. And a very quick tip of our hats to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good today. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. We love to hear from you. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.